The Haunted UK podcast is produced and released in stereo. Listening through an environment such as headphones or stereo speakers will ensure you get the best experience. Before we get into the main content of this episode, I'd just like to take a moment to mention a great podcast. This is a show that mixes comedy with the paranormal, hilarity with horror, and mentions of makeup techniques and bananas. I'm talking, of course, about the brilliant podcast Ghost Huns. Hosted by Hannah and Susie, Ghost Huns is a madcap journey through some of the most weird, disturbing, and terrifying stories that the paranormal has to offer. From haunted swimming pools to the Diatlov Pass, creepy closets to the mossy men of Chernobyl, and even the granddaddy of the paranormal podcast himself, Danny Robbins. There's something for everyone with Ghost Hunts, and with over 60 episodes, sellout tours, and Patreon bonuses, you won't be short of content to get your lovely little brains wrapped around. So don't delay. Search for the Ghost Hunts podcast and join Hannah and Susie on their hilarious journey. Here at Haunted UK Podcast Towers, we're committed to giving you high-quality great episodes time after time after time. But this takes a lot of effort in research, writing, editing, recording, mixing, mastering and publishing. We don't have a fancy production company or a bank of scriptwriters or a large budget to keep everything going. We are a fully independent podcast. If you'd like to help the show, then why not get over to Coffee and search for the Haunted UK podcast, where you can subscribe to give just £3 per month the price of a coffee, or as much as you like. If you'd rather not sign up for a monthly subscription, then you can simply make a one-off donation, again, as little or as much as you like. This really helps the show with our website, coffee membership, merchandise, equipment, as well as other financial commitments. So, if you feel that you'd like to help keep the lights burning, the wheels turning, and the stories rolling then why not consider getting over to coffee and donating to the show? That's K-O hyphen F-I and search for the Haunted UK podcast. Thank you. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Now, without any further delay, let's get this episode started. I write on behalf of many. What strange words you speak, although I must confess that I too have been badly educated. Sometimes it seems changes are somewhat obstructive, for many a time they disturb me sleeping in my bed. You are a worthy man who has a fanciful woman, and you live in my house. I have no wish to alarm you, for it is only since the half-witted fool ripped apart my confines I have been tormented at nights. I have seen many changes, lastly the schoolhouse and your home. It is a fitting place, with the lights which the devil makes and costly things which only my friend, Edmund Gray, can afford, or the king himself. It was a great crime to have stolen my house. L.W. The message didn't spook Ken and Debbie as much as it intrigued them. But it was the beginning of many messages, many strange events which would tear their life apart in a flurry of preternatural terror.
is episode 47 of the Haunted UK podcast. And this, my good friends, is the story of the vertical plane, part one. For this very strange and perplexing story, we need to go all the way back to 1984, before the internet as we know it, before the connectivity we take for granted today, before smartphones, the quick touch of a button and voice commands to Alexa, before all of that. So let's go back to 1984, to an 18th century dwelling called Meadow Cottage, in a village called Doddleston in Cheshire on the Welsh-English border. Like ghosts, let's pass through the oak-panelled door of this quaint cottage, dip our head under the low beams, smell the embers and smoke of a dwindling fire, tread carefully on the flagstone floor leading to the kitchen at the back of the cottage. Mind as you cross the gnarled threshold strip and there you will see on a rough-hewn wooden kitchen table a big boxy computer somehow out of place a BBC computer some of you may remember them and standing there a couple sipping coffee rather apprehensively looking confused staring at the monitor with an expression of dread and horror a scene you will be most familiar with by the end of this two-part episode two parts because Well, a lot happens in this story. It is complicated, and it is messy. If you can imagine for a moment a tangle of wires all on a floor, and you are faced with the insurmountable task of separating them all. Well, piecing this story from Ken Webster's The Vertical Plane for a podcast episode was a bit like that. Daunting, tricky, seemingly impossible but thankfully now realized. We hope we haven't left any wires crossed. This is a story which happened to Ken Webster and his partner Debbie Oakes in the years of 1984 to 1986. Ken Webster wrote The Vertical Plane to record the events he struggled to make sense of, something which no doubt will haunt him for the rest of his days. In 1989, the book was published and ever since its mystery has sparked debate fascination, as well as crossing and tripping a few wires along the way. It even featured on ITV's Out of This World in 1996, and you can catch this on YouTube still. It's worth a watch. So, to begin untangling, let's start at the beginning, because that's a good place to start. Ken Webster is an economics teacher at the local secondary school, Howarden, and it's only the autumn term, and already he is jaded, tired from the relentless workload, probably also exhausted from the renovations over the summer at Meadow Cottage, where he lives with Debbie, or Deb, as she is sometimes called in the book. The cottage is full of dust with bags of cement dotted everywhere, and it doesn't feel like home yet. Temper's afraid, and the end doesn't seem in sight. But it's the weekend, and there's a flicker of excitement as Ken picks up his good friend Nicola Baguley from the train station. Hi, Nick. Nick is another disillusioned teacher who packed in her English teaching job and went on her travels around East Africa for three months, and now on her return has no place to stay with no concrete plans. A stay around the concrete bags with Ken and Debbie seems an inviting option. Ken found Nick's presence calming. Her sense of fun was infectious. She was on the hunt for a friend she had lost contact with and seemed at a loss with her life. Starting an alternative cabaret band was on the top of her list as they drove back towards the cottage. Ken was bemused to listen to her plans. Ken joked she could stay for as long as she wanted if she helped with the decorating, a task he loathed. Nick heartily agreed and that night plans were made, mugs of tea were drunk, 
goblets of wine too, and a good amount of pizza consumed. There was life at last in the old cottage, and the future didn't seem too bleak. Ken didn't feel so tired, and Debbie enjoyed Nick's company. But then, it began. The following pieces of dialogue are direct quotes from the vertical plane. Ken, what is this? Nick said, nodding towards some marks on the wall between the bathroom and the kitchen. Has someone been putting their feet there? Ken had seen them before. They'd been there for a while, but thought nothing of it, musing, Yes, they do look a bit footprinty, don't they? And pondered if it was just how the light was catching the marks. They were very small footprints, far too small to be any of theirs. Deb thinks she can see six toes in them, but I'm not sure. Nick and Ken turned their heads looking at the footprints, trying to work out how they could have got there. With no theories apparent, and wondering if it was just one of those weird one-off things, Nick sniffed, as if to end the conversation, and they carried on with their day. Decorating continued and the downstairs was looking quite good. The upstairs was still a bit of a mess and needed doing. Deb and Ken camped out in the front bedroom on a creaky old bed and Nick had the back bedroom, which also doubled up as a music studio. And she slept on a single mattress with some recording equipment and electric guitars crammed in all around her. But she didn't mind. In fact, they all lived in a state of blissful bohemia for a short while. Friends would often pop round to jam. One of them, John, had a juvenile sense of humour which grated on Ken, and he secretly suspected that he had his eye on Deb. Anyway, lots of laughter and late nights ensued, and the painting continued. The painting continued so much that the six-toed footprints were conclusively painted over, thought of no more. A silly thing erased. The next morning, hazy with sleep, Ken sauntered downstairs to the toilet and stopped in his tracks. Oh my god. There, on the wall, he saw fresh footprints on the newly painted wall. This time, definitely six-toed, small, and not in the same position, but they were made from the cement dust, for all to see. Unnerved, Ken hastily showed Deb and Nick. Nick was horrified, probably because it was she who had painted over them so decisively the day before. The colour drained from her face, and from that point, none of them really wanted to go downstairs at night to the bathroom. But this was just the beginning. What followed was a series of strange phenomena before the really bizarre events started to occur. After the footprints, a perfect pyramid of cat food was formed in the living room. At this stage, Ken suspected Trickster John, but then a strange construction of kitchen roll and lemonade bottles was precariously piled high, defying any gravitational pull. He couldn't really blame John for that one, as much as he wanted to. And then, A shadowy figure crept past Nick's window as well as Ken and Deb simultaneously waking up in the night, convinced someone was in their bedroom. Who's there? Yet there was no one there. Just darkness. Shadows. Another weird moment. Deb and Nick were having a cosy chat by the fire when a gust of wind came rushing in from the kitchen. A folded-up newspaper, which was lying on the floor by the door, flew up high into the air and then scattered into three separate neat piles on the floor. It felt ordered, purposeful, and it was enough to creep Nick and Deb out. And perhaps because of the sinister lemonade bottle stacking, this really unsettled Ken even more when he returned. What a strange few weeks they were having where suddenly kitchen rolls seemed frightening fizzed up lemonade a sinister portent of things to come and cat food positively demonic the everyday ordinary seemed touched by something extraordinary not of this world a stretch of sleepless nights followed ken and deb sensing something or someone was there in the night with them watching them 
So with the decorating mostly done now, Nick was tapping her fingers abuzz with what to do next with her life. By this point, Ken was finding it difficult to keep up with her natural ebullience when he felt so drained from teaching. So he kindly urged that she should perhaps put something into action sooner rather than later. Nick agreed and toyed with her original idea of starting up an alternative cabaret group, writing some comedy scripts perhaps. Ken, more out of a selfish reason to keep Nick occupied, suggested that he could bring home a computer from school, which had a simple word processor that she could use. Nick jumped at this idea, and so Ken brought something home, which would change the lives of Ken and Deb forever. The BBC Computer Now let's stop for a moment and talk about the BBC microcomputer as it's officially known. This wasn't a computer that you or I are used to, and for those too young to remember, let me describe it for you. Its monitor was boxy, like an old-fashioned portable TV, the keyboard clunky with black and orange keys, text typed on the screen glowed an ominous green. You could not save anything on its hard drive, you had to use a floppy disk, which to make things more confusing, wasn't actually floppy. You could not communicate to and from this computer in any way. In effect, it was an electronic typewriter. On the basic model, when you switch them off, everything is wiped. However, it was popular, and it was beloved, and people found it very useful. Introduced to the market in 1982 for a BBC computer literacy program, hence its name, It had an accompanying TV series called The Computer Program. Eventually, this became a school staple in the 1980s, and it is estimated 80% of schools had them, including Ken's Howarden School, where there was a suite of about eight of them. A highly sought-after word processing program on this computer was called Edward, spelt E-D-W-O-R-D, which was installed on the Hawarden's school's computers. And so, when Ken brought the BBC home one day, like a pet kitten, Nick could hardly contain her delight. Just make sure you save everything under a file name on the disk, and you're fine, Ken explained to Nick. He then talked Nick through the very simple steps of accessing Edward, and left her to it. Nick spent many happy hours typing her cabaret scripts, immersed in her own world, and in that first week with the BBC in the cottage, all was still, quiet. But that quiet, that peace, would soon be shattered. Sunday dawned, and as the day etched on, Ken felt the gravitational pull of Monday. Bored and listless, exhausted before the week had even begun, On edge at the thought of the drudgery that lay ahead, he looked at the pile of exercise books left unmarked, collecting dust, and declared, in a resigned, exasperated way, that a drive was in order. And so all three of them drove to see their friend Dave Lovell in the next village. The house was now empty. The computer had been left on. At Dave's, they spent the whole evening trying to combat the Sunday evening blues, putting the world to rights, listening to Nick's plans, guitar strings strung. They were enjoying themselves. But then they came back. The weekend had gone. Ken, deflated and quite down, suggested coffee while Nick and Deb crashed and lay idly on the sofa. Ken put the kettle on without much purpose, And while grabbing the mugs from the cupboard, he thought he might amuse himself by having a quick, surreptitious look at Nick's work on the BBC. The screen no longer showed the Edward menu, only the basic menu. Ken dismissed this and went into the index, and what he found was most unusual. In the index, there was a new file name labelled KDN, before there were only Nick's files usually saved under single letters such as D or O, as well as a timetable for a colleague at his school. He clicked on the KDN file, and in an array of block capital letters, 
lowercase and gaps between them, a lyrical message tumbled onto the screen. Ken, a grounded man to the earth, rational, occasionally cynical, felt his very bones go cold. He knew at this point that there were many reasons of how this message could have arrived on that disc, but he couldn't rationalize away this feeling of dread, this emotion tightening in his throat. There was no getting away from it. There was something about that poem which frightened him. Ken decided to return the computer to the school and print the weird poem from the diskette, as it's called in the book. Once printed, he made a few copies. Somehow it looked less threatening to him now that it was in print, distant, and in all honesty, daft. Christmas arrived. Nick returned to her native Basingstoke, and the season passed in a blur of noise, which included some strange happenings again. The odd stacking of lager cans, their plastic container rings in shreds next to it, which felt ominous somehow, and odd chalk markings on a pillar of exposed brick in the kitchen. It wasn't until February that Ken brought back the computer from school, installed once again in the kitchen of Meadow Cottage, mainly because Nick was back, and after making some headway with her cabaret troupe, she wanted to write some more material. Ken also wanted to write and perhaps publish some songs with his slippery friend John. So slippery, in fact, that he planned to use the BBC to type up a songwriting contract for John to sign. At this point, John is definitely Ken's number one suspect. He is convinced John is the author of that poem. He also suspects John wants to see Deb more than he wanted to work on any music. I think it would be fair to say there was unrest in the cottage at this stage, perhaps even paranoia. Ken fed up with his job, his profession even, and later in the story, he does leave teaching. We definitely see the angst, a pent-up frustration with teaching at the beginning of these messages. Ken seems to have a sense of unease with those around him, and all of them, Ken, Deb and Nick, or shall we label them KDN like the file, felt frayed at the edges by the odd stacking, the drops in temperature, seeing things in shadows. All of these things were taking its toll. As always the case whenever Ken felt fed up, he would often retreat to his beloved car, slam the door, drive for the hills, and this cold, gloomy February Sunday was no different. Deb and Nick got into that car too, grateful for a break. The cottage was empty. The computer was on. As a side note, it's not clear in the vertical plane if it's the same computer he had before Christmas or if he picks up another one from the suite. Later in the book, Ken does mention that he takes home different computers from the school. Something to consider. When they returned, Nick is quoted as saying, Shall we look at the computer, chaps? You never know. John may have been at it again. Was John at it again? And why was Nick so eager to look? On the screen, there was a new file name called Reate. Ken presumed a person perhaps typed Create, which is what you needed to type to open a new document, and this was an error. They opened it, and there it was. A message, this time more coherent and strangely in Old English. 
The following is a translation into modern English from the vertical plane. I write on behalf of many. What strange words you speak, although I must confess that I too have been badly educated. Sometimes it seems changes are somewhat obstructive, for many a time they disturb me sleeping in my bed. You are a worthy man who has a fanciful woman, and you live in my house. I have no wish to alarm you, for it is only since the half-witted fool ripped apart my confines I have been tormented at nights. I have seen many changes, lastly the schoolhouse and your home. It is a fitting place, with the lights which the devil makes and costly things which only my friend Edmund Gray can afford, or the king himself. It was a great crime to have stolen my house. L. W. This message didn't spook them as much as it intrigued them. They recognized it was an older form of English, and something about L.W. spoke to Ken on a deeper level. But just like the fear he had before, he couldn't really put his finger on why. Whoever this L.W. was, they lived in this cottage and wanted them gone. None of them could get their heads around what this message meant. Was this a ghost in the walls watching them? Or something living in a parallel universe? In the past? In their cottage? Where light which the devil did make didn't exist yet? It was all so curious. Ken desperately needed to get an objective view of these messages and he knew exactly who to seek out. Peter Trinder. Peter Trinder was an English teacher not too dissimilar to the Robin Williams character John Keating in the film Dead Poets Society. He was much respected, inspiring, with a passion for literature and language, and there was a rigour and robustness about his manner which got things done. He also had a genuine belief in his students, Perhaps it was this belief, then, that made Ken, his former student, approach him. Peter had read the message and left a note in Ken's pigeonhole. Alongside the annotated message from L.W., he scrawled, Utterly fascinating. If this is a hoax, what a romp. And so one lunchtime in the staff room, Peter approached Ken. Looking at him levelly, he asked, Is this a hoax? And in earnest, Ken told him it really wasn't. Peter believed him, and Ken knew he had a solid ally in the brewing chaos that was forming, promising to update him on any more messages he might receive. In the meantime, Ken met up with his friend John Cummings. And by the way, this is a different John. This John was a good friend, not slippery or after his girlfriend, and somewhat amusingly, like any good detective, he smokes a pipe. Ken updated him with the latest turn of bizarre events. John smoked his pipe, paced the room like Sherlock Holmes, and considered the facts. Through the pipe smoke, he proposed that a reply was in order. What should we write? asked Deb, who was already grabbing a pen and paper. John advised to find out the date LW is writing from, but that they should establish the era they are writing from too. Together, they formulated a reply. In the reign of Queen Elizabeth II, dear L.W., thank you for your message. We are sorry for disturbing you. What would you like us to do? Do you live in a house on this land in about 1620? Do you want us to tell you about our time? Why write a poem? Who is Edward Gray? Is he related to the Edgerton family? Do you have a family? Is the King James or Charles Stuart? What is the charge house? Was this village called Doddleston in your life? And how many families lived there? Thank you very much for your messages. Thank you for not making us afraid. Ken, Debbie and John. 
John was keen to wait for the reply, and Ken was even keener to go to the pub. When they returned, disappointingly, there was nothing. The following afternoon, lo and behold, a message appeared. Ken rang John up, and Deb shouted out the message for Ken to give to John over the phone. John furiously sketched down, The king, of course, is Henry VIII, who is six and forty. Following this message was signed L.W. March Anno 1521, and in brackets, a question mark. This message seriously spurned all hopes that this was something genuine. Peter Trinder pointed out that question marks are a relatively modern punctuation, and King Henry VIII was not 46 in 1521, but a younger man of 30. And there were other references in the message which were troubling. Lucas mentioned Kinnerton Hall, which wasn't built until the 17th century, and he spoke of an Edmund Grey living there. But there is no evidence of this. So, what with the question marks, the out-of-kilter dates, the word hoax hung heavily in the air. Feeling slightly put out by this likelihood, life felt a bit empty for Ken in those cold February days. A grey coldness engulfed the place, but he did have his beloved old XJ6 coupe he had bought at Christmas. The car was due for some body repair work, and Ken felt uplifted just by looking at the car. Enjoying his morning, Ken returned in good spirits, only to face some naughty spirits in his home. Three milk cartons were again stacked in an odd way in his kitchen, but more importantly on the monitor, there was an extensive message. The message, which was again from LW, was for the first time signed by Lucas Wainman, with revelations and details all about his life. At the start of the message, he sounded quite irked, particularly in response to Ken's question about what items he possessed. His answer had a sense of, well, you should know you are living in my home. Lucas, as he came to be known by, movingly told of his life, how his wife and son had died in the pestilence, how he harvested barley for ale, his farm humble with redstone footings. More than anything, Ken was impressed that this guy from 400 years ago could function the scroll action on the word processor. It did make him doubt for a second that this could be real. The redstone footings detail stood out to Ken as he remembered in the recent renovation that red sandstone blocks had been dug out from the original outhouse building. Although this information piqued him in some way, his inner cynic quelled it with, well, anyone could have seen those blocks in the garden. However, at heart, Ken was delighted with this message, reflecting that if it is a hoax, it's a clever one, and a puzzle he was enjoying. He was really warming to Lucas, and the thought of having a pen pal from the 16th century, dotty as it sounded, was something he loved the idea of, and he desperately wanted it to be real. To fuel his hopes further, Peter Trinder, after analysing the recent messages using the Oxford English Dictionary, insisted the language was absolutely correct for the time. Although he was puzzled by the modern use of punctuation and bizarre grammatical errors only associated with some English regions, according to Peter, they would not have been used in the Chester area. However, Trinder was convinced, or at least he was extremely impressed by the use of language from that time, and he stressed this to Ken. However, this conviction of Peter's was thrown when a message from February the 16th arrived, with word uses inconsistent for the period. For example, the word rotation, in an agricultural context, wasn't used for another 220 years. Lucas also kept talking about his love of cheese, and they felt the Cheshire cheese-loving countryman's stereotype felt false, cliched, and exaggerated. The puzzle, the mystery, the ebbing tide of is it a hoax or isn't it, continued with the flood of messages Ken and Debbie received that spring. More than anything, Ken was becoming fondly attached to Lucas, 
He found it touching that he would save his file, Ken One, mirroring Ken's file name, Lucas One. They told each other about their lives. Lucas musing, It is good that we can be wanton and jape so. Lucas was particularly bemused by Ken's horseless cart tiger, his jaguar, and could not understand what the hell it was. One day, Ken left a picture from an advert of a Jaguar XJ Coupe by the computer for Lucas to see. Incredibly, he got a response. My good friend, I have found your picture of the cart, but it is a crude thing for without the horse, it won't go far. Tell me what unknown wood this is. Is it like silk? I cannot describe it better. More incredible still, the photo of the jag had burnt edges, giving the impression it had been handled. Deb joked, I bet that if he was the devil, it would burn at the edges. The thought made Ken go cold. It did unnerve him that he had no clue who the author of these messages was. Just a naive belief that Lucas in his Tudor world had to be real that he really was communicating with someone 400 years ago. I don't think the term catfish existed in the 1980s, but as Ken drank his coffee, I imagine a fear in that vein arose. Am I actually conversing with a man from the 1520s or something else? And is it the devil himself? Are likely questions that formed in the ripples of his mind. Ken is emphatic that it wasn't or just couldn't be anyone in the house doing it. It would be, he argued, impossible. Ken quotes, Debbie and I were a lot more confident that we were not being hoaxed for the simple reason that we could be in the house or out of it, asleep or awake, and we could leave the computer for a very limited time and still this stuff keeps coming. The only thing we could not do was be in the kitchen. Watching the screen did no good, though we spent some hours in an attempt. I wrote in my diary, if this is a hoax, we are now the only suspects. Alongside the messages, the strange happenings in the cottage continued. The stacking, occasional writing on the wall, and not forgetting the curious weird riddle which first appeared on the computer. Ken's friend John Cummins, of the pipe-smoking fame, invited Ken and Deb to stay in London for the weekend. It was there he revealed he had been reading Colin Wilson's Poltergeist, a book Ken eventually forced himself to read, acknowledging that it was possible that all of these experiences, including the Lucas messages, could be merely poltergeist activity. Although we all know there's nothing merely about poltergeist activity. As he read... He understood how a poltergeist is likely energy feeding off emotion, and often young energy. Debbie was younger than himself. For the first time, he wondered if it was centred around her, whether deliberately or subconsciously. It was a thought that he quickly put out of his mind. He felt all at sea with it all. He had to accept the goings-on were not normal, but it was hard. Nick had returned to London and Deb even moved out to keep out of the way. Although this was more to do with the renovations than a poltergeist, but the place was in turmoil. Ken stayed at Deb's place more and more, and it was difficult for him to admit, but at the cottage he was sleeping with the light on, afraid Lucas would appear like a devil at the bottom of his bed. So, Meadow Cottage wasn't an easy place to love or indeed live. John Cummins then started to talk about ley lines, and with a map of Doddleston sprawled across the floor, they worked out that indeed Doddleston was magically aligned between two ley lines. Ley lines are invisible mystical energy lines which are supposedly mapped across Britain, and it deserves a whole episode in itself, being so steeped in folklore and magic. It's argued that some ancient monuments have been built upon them, Many believe ancient societies were aware of these mystical coordinates and utilized the power they withheld. Ley lines have also been linked with extraterrestrial activity and poltergeists. 
which could prove interesting in this two-parter. However, Ken wasn't so convinced. He watched them as they angled rulers and studied the map, feeling uncomfortable with the departure from any rational conjecture he was used to forming. He simply shook his head and wondered where his life was actually headed. Still, the poltergeist activity continued. A mischievous game of placing a milk carton precariously on the edge of a coffee pot or in the middle of the room began. This activity increased each time they received a message. Ken charmingly called it polyactivity, but it scared the hell out of Deb. She found the atmosphere each message brought stifling, and she felt that there was a link. Poltergeist activity did seem to follow each message. She couldn't bear the tapping noises which seemed to come from the door to the kitchen, and the stacking certainly freaked her out. Then the word Lucas was chalked on the wall. It all defied any rational explanation. To make Deb even more on edge, Lucas directed his attentions on her, calling her a tomboy, well-schooled, and the perfect partner. In all truth, she found it creepy. One day, Deb had a disturbing moment when she was on her own, hearing that tap, tap, tap again from behind that door which led to the kitchen, to the point she was too scared to go in there to make a coffee, even peering underneath the door to check no one was in there. After reassuring herself that the coast was clear, she made that desperately yearned-for coffee, chiding herself for being silly. But it was when she went back into the lounge that something out of the ordinary happened. In the book, she reports the following. I came back into the lounge and sat down with the coffee. At that moment, I felt a prickly coldness against the left side of my face and neck. And something pulled at my hair. I thought it was my collar at first until it persisted another four times and stopped. It happened so quickly. I wasn't sure what to think until a few seconds later I felt a slight pressure bearing on my left shoulder. I froze until the pressure gripping my shoulder was unbearable. I knew someone was to the left of me, but I could not see out of the corner of my eye. I turned around and nothing was there. I went outside that house and waited for Ken to return. The cold, damp rain didn't bother me as much as that house. Deb told Ken quite firmly that if it happened again, she would leave the house and would never return. Although this did not happen again to Deb, she did see Lucas in her dreams. Indeed, it seemed Lucas was slightly taken with Deb. It was around this time Deb started to have lucid dreams where she would see Lucas and communicate with him. She called them funny dreams. They felt so vivid, visceral, explaining to Ken that she would be aware in the dream that she was dreaming. At this point, Deb worries she is manifesting Lucas somehow, that she is suggesting him and creating a character when retelling her dream. Strangely, her dream experiences would echo some of Lucas's messages. She recounts one dream in particular where she seemingly meets Lucas for the first time. As I took a step forward, out of the fireplace, a movement to the right of me caught my attention. It was a man. A poorly dressed man. How odd this dream, I thought to myself. He spoke with a thick accent and a look of complete surprise in his eyes. He placed some kind of hammer down on the large primitive table, then stood up in obvious bewilderment. Later that evening, a love-struck Lucas wrote of a beautiful woman appearing to him, suddenly only to leave mine presence. Could the two be connected in some way? And what does this imply about Debbie's involvement with the messages? Interesting to note, but later in the book, Deb becomes hesitant in telling Peter about her dreams, feeling that he wouldn't believe her. Further on in the story, Debbie reluctantly describes another dream she has, 
after Lucas writes a poem saying farewell to a maiden. Debbie described being in a room and seeing Catherine, Lucas's serving woman, sitting on a small stool working, likely sewing when Lucas strode in, shouting at Catherine, imploring her to look up and see Debbie. Look up! Look up! Can't thou see her? But she can't. Lucas becomes more agitated and pleads with her shouting for her to look. Look up! He then pushes Debbie further into the room and urges her to pick up a knife on the serving table, which she tries to do, but her hand goes through the table. By this time, Catherine, who was very young, was hysterically crying. It was a distressing scene, and Debbie was upset by Lucas's behavior and pleaded with him to stop. At this point, Catherine ran out of the room, and Lucas closed his eyes resignedly and points to the chimney implying he wanted Debbie gone. The chimney seemed to be the exit, and at this moment, she woke up, unsettled with the notion that Lucas was a bully. Another person Lucas was fairly taken with was Peter Trinder. A fellow Oxford man, Lucas felt Peter was the only man who truly understood him, much to Ken's annoyance. In messages to Peter, Lucas would detail his time at Brasenose College, Oxford, and asked Peter, in particular, to look for a list of books he studied at the time as proof. He also described a Latin inscription over the fireplace. On the 1st of April 1985, Peter embarked on a trip to Brasenose, where he was met with some derision sharing the story. People thought it was a spectacular April Fool's joke, and Peter was beginning to wonder that himself. Fortunately, the assistant librarian at Brasenose, Robin Peedle, took more of an interest and helped Peter with his inquiry. Lucas Wainman was not on record until over a century later, and the inscription he described was over the stairs and not the fireplace. Peter left Robin with a list of books Lucas had claimed to have studied at the time and left slightly disappointed. Peter did make a note of fellow men who studied at the same time as Lucas, though. That night, Peter sent Lucas a message about the inaccuracies. He also asked him who would he have studied with. He said the inscription was not above the fireplace, but he did not reveal to Lucas where it was. Lucas replied, I must cover my shame. I made a mistake about the words over the fireplace. It is my poor memory. The words are above the first stairs. He then correctly detailed what the message said in Latin. Lucas also listed some of the men he studied with. And checkmate. Bingo. They were the same as the ones Peter noted down. On the 10th of April, the trio received a troubling message from Lucas. I saw my learned friend concerning your time. He had many a word to say, although he thinks that I am sick. He advised me well. He said I must not tell a soul about this unknown world and about your people, else it is nothing less than a capital offense according to the Crown. I immediately swore that you were honest, but that sometimes makes people fearful, such as my servant. Also, he asks me not to write until he comes and sees the computer, so I shall speak to you five days from now. Ken and Debbie decided to patiently wait for five days, and on the 13th of April, major work on the cottage resumed. A bulldozer outside the kitchen, a tractor too, Earth dug up with chaos and brick dust in the air again. During this time, another strange side to these communications was revealed. Debbie had purchased a book on the history of Chester. Whilst reading, she was horrified by a punishment known as pressing, where heavier and heavier stones would be pressed on the defendant's chest until they confessed to the crime or die. The couple discussed this and Ken mentioned that it was also known as Penfort Adir. Later, 
A message from Lucas. I heard you speak of the awful Penfortadur. Why is this? Do you mean to tell the crown? This small message speaks of a small voice afraid and paranoid, perhaps made more so by his concerned friend. But, of course, what's revealed is that Lucas could hear them, and he was listening. A few days later, Ken and Debbie did indeed hear directly from this concerned friend, but in a somewhat incoherent message. If you could imagine a cat running across your keyboard resulting in a series of letters and all sorts in a garbled mess, or of course, like someone from the 16th century trying to get used to a computer keyboard, it was signed off, John. Yes, another John, just to make things more clear, as mud. Straight after this, a more composed message followed, not from Lucas, but from the friend. It read in a rather defiant, protective tone. The following is a modern translation taken from the vertical plane. My good man, I have heard of your griffins, lions and wondrous possessions, and it is too fantastic to understand, and your people are unnatural, although I have no dread. You are a phantasm of great powers. It is my theory that you are in the future. So can you tell me when the king ends his reign, and who is to take the crown? How do you cure the people of your time? Is the computer yours, pray? The fashion of our time is such that I will not give my own name, nor Lucas's true description and name. A friend. And so another reveal. Lucas was not his real name. This posed challenges in their research, but it did throw a lifebuoy of hope on the no Lucas Wayneman factor at Brasno's college. It was all so puzzling and, well, weird. And was Lucas testing them? So many questions with not many answers, but the questions were about to get more frantic, desperate and angry in the form of messages from his friend, who is possibly called John. You are a foolish scoundrel who has brought nothing less than evil upon the wretch. I hope he comes to no harm, for I guarantee your death by my own hand. It was not to be avoided with your charm of lights, and now he sits in the shameful dungeon. It will be your own ruin. Unless you help Lucas, he will die. If you reveal yourselves to the crown for what you are and display your devilish powers, then his life is saved. Reveal the truth and give no false threats and explain what is necessary, computer. Friend. It seemed that Lucas had been imprisoned for witchcraft and things were about to take an even stranger turn. What followed were days of Ken and Debbie desperately wrangling with this friend for information on Lucas's fate. They wrote several emotionally charged messages with pleas on how they could help him and crucially for his true name. The friend would reply, but only to goad them. Until after one particularly emotional message from Ken, there was at last a reply from Lucas. My good friend, I know not where I can start to describe my misfortunes. I have thought much about the box of lights, for it is this very matter I fear for my life. The sheriff has forbidden me to leave my house, and I am guarded by the sheriff's men who are at each door. And then he revealed something rather odd. The boist comes not from my time nor yours, but from God. It is important to note here that Lucas does tend to call the computer boist, spelt B-O-Y-S-T-E, leams, and rather endearingly, box of lights. In this latest message, he goes on to explain how the box of lights arrived with a note, written in 16th century English, warning him not to ask about their that's Ken, Debbie and Peters, a natural knowledge about the computer. He then signs off, fearing for his life, expecting his death. It felt very final, 
leaving Ken and Debbie in some dismay and very shaken. Ken was on the verge of tears. Was there anything they could do? Over the next few days, they did hear from Lucas again, and under house arrest, he sent a torrent of messages for Peter, his fellow Oxford man, with pleas of ideas for getting him out of this mess. As so often is the case in this story, things took a more unyielding, inexplicable turn. Things being the operative word here. And this is where the story will blow your mind, bend your beliefs, and just, well, wonder what the hell is going on with the universe. Strap in. And so, Lucas asked a strange question. You said your time is 1985. I thought you were also from 2109, like your friend who brought the box of light spray. What did he mean? Ken was perplexed. He mused over it with Debbie. What did he mean, 2109? It seemed like a date in the future. Did Lucas think that they too were writing from 2109? Is 2109 a place? The message implied 2109 brought the box of lights to him with a warning about them in 1985. Was this some kind of experiment from the future? Were they, whoever these possible time travellers from 2109 were, conducting an experiment between the 1500s and 1985? And was 1985 an ideal time to demonstrate a warp in the space-time continuum when computers are common, but without the connectivity? Who knows? But it was a head-scratcher of a message. Ken and Debbie felt uneasy. It was so fanciful and odd that it compounded their fears that it was a hoax. And there they were again, back at the tide. Hoax, not hoax. Hoax. Images of school kids giggling arose in their minds, laughing at them behind a secret computer somewhere, or even the loafer John. But they had to admit, all of this was far beyond John or some genius teenage computer hacker. They would have to sneak in through the kitchen window and type for a start. There was no way these messages could be sent from another device at this time. And if they were, a breakthrough in home computing, happening in a tiny Cheshire village where the best line of communication was a red telephone box, seemed very unlikely. Ken wondered about the message, or verse, Lucas referred to which came with the computer. All this strangeness started for them too with a weird poem. Was this also a message to them from this 2109? Was it the same? Just what was going on? Impulsively, Ken decided to contact this mysterious 2109 and feeling brave, he jokingly, rather recklessly, typed calling 2109 at the same time Ken messaged Lucas proposing his idea about the original poem and asked if it was similar Ken offered to send their first poem Ken received a message back from Lucas terrifyingly he also received a reply from 2109 and with that one message the wonderful pen palesque rapport Ken had with Lucas would never be the same again. And this is, I'm afraid, where we are going to stop. But rest assured, we will be back next time with part two, The Fate of Lucas, who is still under house arrest, will be revealed. And we face the rather disturbing element in this story. 2109. Who or what are they? What is their involvement? Is there a connection between Lucas's message and the poem Ken and Debbie first received? And what's more, what is Lucas's true identity? Many more twists and turns, new characters, new non-internet cables and wires to entangle in this tale yet. There will be more scary moments in that cottage, official tests conducted, 
the Society for Psychical Research become involved, but so do 2109, and it's terrifying. Let us know your thoughts so far. What is going on? Is this a hoax? Events in part two will seem too crazy to be true, but perhaps you might also say, after listening to part two, that it would be more ludicrous to call it a hoax. But so far, if you do feel someone is doing this, who do you think the culprit or culprits might be? Is it Ken, his frustrated energy taking shape and causing chaos? Is it Debbie doing this all by herself? Or even unconsciously? In anxious moments, this is something that's even crossed her mind. And Ken's. Could it be both of them in some kind of sick publicity stunt? Could it be John, Ken's arch-adversary and love rival? And also remember, there were a lot of disturbances in the cottage. Construction work. Bulldozers. And we on this podcast, we know what this means. And we know that often paranormal activity follows. Could it be the dead disturbed from their rest? Or is this simply a poltergeist taking many guises? Is this too simple an explanation? And do we even know enough about poltergeists anyway? Is any of this possible in 1984? Am I asking too many questions? And does your head hurt yet? In the meantime, while you wait for part two, be wary and careful of what you invite into your life. For instance, do not type 2109 on a live document and summon them to contact you. Because as you'll soon find out, it's dangerous. And my goodness, if you do and they respond... The next person to feature on an episode will definitely be you. Do you have an interesting story which you'd be willing to share with the show? If so, your story could feature in our end-of-season listener stories episodes. Please get in touch with the show via email at contactus at hauntedukpodcast.com marking the subject as listener story. We're waiting for your stories. As well as coffee, you can also follow the Haunted UK podcast on Twitter at Haunted UK Pod and on Instagram at Haunted UK Podcast. You can also find us on our website at www.hauntedukpodcast.com where you'll be able to keep up to date with news and announcements, browse and download our episode scripts get in touch with us, and much, much more. This episode was presented by Steve, produced by Pink Flamingo Home Studio, which you can also find on Instagram by searching for at Pink Flamingo Home Studio. The script for this episode was edited by Marie Waller Proofreading. For more information about this service, contact Marie at mariewaller.proofreading at gmail.com. For a list of all research sources which we found helpful for the writing of this episode, please see the show's notes. Thank you again for listening to and supporting the Haunted UK podcast. So until the next episode, stay safe and take care.